Chapter 2, Part 2 of The Assault on Mount Everest, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Potenza. The Assault on Mount Everest, 1922, by various authors. The Assault on the Mountain, by C. G. Bruce, Part 2. About the time the other party left for the base camp, Finch and Jeffrey Bruce set off for the camp on the Chang La, Camp 4, taking with them twelve laden coolies to carry their outfit. I will not attempt to describe their subsequent mountaineering operations in detail, as these must be left to Finch's narrative in a subsequent chapter. But there are a great many points to which attention might be drawn. First, although Geoffrey Bruce is thoroughly accustomed to work on the hillside, he had never before this big attempt, and before the few practice walks that he had with Finch, attempted a snow mountain in his life. The nearest thing he had been to it was following game in Kashmir. It was, therefore, for him a very great test. The same also applies to the Gurkha. Although he is a born mountain man, and has hardly been off the hillside the whole of his life, up to the time of the climb he knew nothing about snow and ice as understood by a Swiss mountaineer. However, they had a first-rate leader, and his trust in them proved anything but ill-placed. Owing to a terrific gale, they had to spend two nights at 25,500 feet. They were all short of food, and no doubt greatly exhausted, and I think they would have been perfectly justified after two nights spent at this tremendous altitude if they had given up their attempt and returned. But they had too much grit for that. Here should have come in the use of Tejbir, if he had been quite himself. He was given extra oxygen to carry, and their intention was that, after proceeding as far as the ridge, he should be sent back to their camp to wait their descent. However, Tejbir was completely played out when he had reached 26,000 feet. The party continued until they reached a point which had been found to work out at 27,235 feet. Here Geoffrey had an accident to his oxygen apparatus, and far from becoming immediately unconscious, as we had been warned would be the case before we left England if climbers were suddenly deprived of their artificial oxygen supply, he was able to attach himself to Finch's instrument while Finch was repairing the damaged apparatus. Slightly higher than this point they were completely exhausted and had to beat a retreat, the whole party finally descending to the North Call, where food was found ready for them, and by the evening got down to Camp 3 itself, a great performance considering the altitude and that the descent was over 6,000 feet. I think it is pretty certain that Tejbir's breakdown was largely due to his not having a windproof suit. This biting west wind goes through wool as if it was paper, and he was exposed to it for a great period of time, and no doubt it very largely sapped his vitality. 
One result of this last attempt is that it increases our hopes almost to the point of certainty that with luck and good weather, and when the oxygen apparatus has been further improved, the summit of Everest will be attained. All the time the porters were working from our base camp, and up there was great competition between them, and also considerable betting as to who would do the hardest work, the true Tibetan-born porters or the Sherpas from the south. It was rather amusing to see the superior airs which the Sherpas invariably gave themselves in traveling through Tibet. They considered Tibetans undoubtedly jangly, and treated them very much from the point of view that a clever Londoner does the simplest form of yokel when he appears in London. At any rate, they backed themselves heavily to beat the Tibetans. It was a pretty good race, but finally they came out well on top. In fact, I think all but one who reached 25,000 feet and over were Sherpas. Paul, the interpreter, and Gyaljan had a great bet also about the officers, Paul favoring Finch and Gyaljan Mallory. As a matter of fact, there was quite a little book made among all the followers with regard to who would go highest among the officers. I did not even belong to the also-rans between them. Oxygen was looked upon as a matter of no particular importance, and I believe Paul made Gyaljan pay up, as he had won with Finch against Mallory. 4. Wild On May 27, we welcomed the arrival of John MacDonald with a further supply of money, as owing to the large calls of our enormous transport, we had been afraid of running short. This was very cheering to us indeed, and also a very great help, for besides the money, Mr. MacDonald brought with him two or three servants very well accustomed to travel in Tibet, and knowing all the people of the country. These we were able to use as special messengers and we sent off immediately by them an account of the climbs that had occurred. The second of them was unfortunately delayed by illness, and this accounted for the slight delay in letting the world know of our great second oxygen climb. The first messenger rode through in ten days from Rongbuk to Ferry, and by so doing almost caught up the previous letters which had been dispatched through the Tsongpens. Arrangements are, after all, not so bad in Tibet. When one considers that Tibetans themselves have no understanding or care for time, the promptness with which the different communications were sent through was rather wonderful. There were, on occasions, no doubt, hitches, but generally speaking, the postal arrangements worked very well. The weather had become more and more threatening, but we could not bring ourselves absolutely to give up for this year the attempts on Everest. At the same time, the casualties were heavy. Our medical members had all got to work and had tested thoroughly each member of the expedition that had been employed. It was evidently absolutely necessary that Moorshead should return as quickly as possible into hospital in India and there were also several other members who were suffering from their hard work. Longstaff had shot his bolt as far as this year's work was concerned, and it was also most important that Moorshead should have a doctor with him. 
Strut, too, was very much overdone, and it was time for him to return. Norton was strained and tired, and Geoffrey's toes, though not so bad as Moore's heads, required that he should quickly go down to a warmer climate. We therefore made up two convoys, which were to start together from the base camp. Longstaff, Strut, and Moorshead to go with the Sardar Gyaljan direct to Darjeeling, traveling via Kambat Song, and from Kambat Song directly south to Lakan and Gangtok, and Darjeeling by the shorter and quicker route. This would bring them quite a week sooner to Darjeeling than the route by which we entered Tibet. It was most important that Moorshead should be got back as quickly as possible. In fact, we were all very nervous about his condition, and we were afraid that it might be necessary for some operation to be carried out actually on the march. It had always been our idea that as soon as we had finished with our summer attack on Everest, the whole expedition should go into the Karta Valley, where Colonel Howard Bury in 1921 made his camps, and there recover from our labors. The Karta Valley is far lower than any other district in this part of Tibet, lying between 11,000 and 12,000 feet above sea level. There are also many comforts which do not exist in other parts. There is good cultivation, trees, and grass to a certain extent, and even some vegetables are obtainable. It is altogether a charming spot, very charming compared with any other country we were likely to see. The road was very high for sick men, as it led over the Doya La, which is only three feet under 17,000 feet. But having once got there, they would be in comfort compared with the Rongbuk Glacier. Having decided on sending off this large convoy of invalids and semi-invalids, we then began to organize our third attempt on Everest, but so doubtful was the weather that the party was organized for two complete purposes. It was fully provisioned with porters, far more than would in the ordinary way be necessary for an attempt on the mountain itself, considering that the camps were all fully provisioned. We had brought every single man off the glacier after the last attempt in order to give them all a complete rest. Everyone had now had a long rest, with the exception of Finch, who had only had five days. He, however, was very keen to join the party. The second role of this party was to evacuate as many camps as possible, according to the condition of the weather, and it was carefully explained to them that if, in their opinion, the weather was such as to preclude an attempt on the mountain, they were to use the greatest possible care and run no undue risks. It was organized as follows, the climbing party to consist of Finch, Mallory, and Somerville, the backing-up party, Crawford, and Wakefield to remain at Camp 3, and Morris, in whose charge the whole of the transport arrangements were, was to take charge of the evacuation of camps either after the attempt had been made, or if no attempt was made, immediately. Such was the condition of the weather that I had no very great hope that even the Chang La camp could be evacuated. But it was most necessary to recover all stores left at the great depot at Camp 3. This was of the utmost importance, as not only was the oxygen apparatus there, but also a great number of surplus stores, stores which we should be in need of. 
We had, of course, rationed these camps with a view to staying there probably a fortnight longer. But this year the monsoon had evidently advanced at least ten days earlier than usual. That, however, we could not foresee, nor could we foresee the very great severity of the 1922 monsoon of the eastern Himalaya. This we only heard about on our return to India later on. It was a curious thing that the Rongbuk Lama had sent up to congratulate the porters, and ourselves also, on having come back safely from the earlier attempts. But he warned the porters to leave the mountain alone, as he had had a vision of an accident. On June 3, the great convoy set off and spent the night at Camp 1. On June 4, we were rather overwhelmed to see Finch staggering into camp. He was very much overdone, and had by no means recovered from his terrific exertions on the mountain. It was quite evident that he was finished for this year, and he was lucky to be just in time to join the detachment returning to India direct. It was a very great loss to the party. Not only would he have been of special assistance as the oxygen expert, but his experience and knowledge of snow and ice under the conditions then prevailing would have been of the greatest advantage to the party. The weather now had completely broken. It was snowing hard. Even at our base camp we had two inches of snow. The whole of the mountains were a complete smother of snow. Notwithstanding this, and under the conditions, quite rightly, the convoy pushed on to Camp 3. On arrival at Camp 3, the weather cleared. The wind temporarily went round to the west, and one perfect day of rest and sunshine was enjoyed. Morris, all this time, was on the line of communication. He had the whole of the service of evacuation to arrange, and was laying out his convoys of Tibetan coolies and others with that point of view in his mind. It was lucky he did so. The great foe, generally speaking, on Everest during the dry period, is the horrible west wind. But now the monsoon had to all intents and purposes arrived. The west wind now was our one and only friend. If it would again blow for a short period, the mountain would probably return temporarily to a fairly safe condition. The south wind is a warm and wet, though fairly strong, current, but the result of even a short visit from it absolutely ruins the mountainside. However, at Camp 3 they enjoyed one full day of sunshine, followed by a very low temperature, 12 degrees below zero, the following night, and it was considered, owing both to the strength of the sun and to the fact that the west wind had temporarily got the better of the south wind, that the mountain would in all probability be safely solidified so as to render an attempt justifiable. Therefore, on the morning of June 7, a start was made to reach the North Col, with the object of spending a night there and making an assault on the mountain the following day. It was also proposed to carry up as much oxygen as possible to the greatest height they could get the porters to go, and from that point only, to use the remaining oxygen to make a push over the summit. I think this was a thoroughly sound proposition. They were all acclimatized, and it seems to me that it is probably better, especially if there is any chance of a shortage of oxygen, 
to use one's acclimatization to go as high as one can without undue fatigue, and from thence on to use the oxygen. No doubt it would be possible, and of advantage, if the oxygen apparatus should ever be improved, to use it for the whole of an ascent, say from 20,000 feet or so. But against that comes the chance that in case of any cessation of the oxygen supply, the danger would be very much greater. The caravan consisted of Mallory, Somerville, and Crawford, who was going with them as far as the North Col to assist them and to relieve them of the hard labor of remaking the path up to that point. Mallory will relate further on how, at about one o'clock, when about half the journey had been completed, the snow suddenly cracked across and gave way, and the whole caravan was swept down the hillside, and seven porters killed. On return to Camp 3, a porter was dispatched to take the news down to the base camp, and arrived that same night at about nine o'clock, having traveled at full speed. Really a wonderful performance. There was nothing to be done, that was quite evident. And all I could do was to await the return of the party for a full account, sending news at the same time to Morris to evacuate the camps at the greatest possible speed. Mallory arrived by himself, very tired, and naturally very upset on Thursday the 8th. Again was shown what a terrible enemy the great Himalaya is. Risks and conditions which would appear justifiable in the Alps can never be taken in the Himalaya. So great is the scale that far greater time must be allowed for the restoration of safe conditions. When once the condition of a mountain is spoiled, the greater size requires more time for its readjustment. The odds against one are much greater in the Himalaya than in the smaller ranges. Its sun is hotter. Its storms are worse. The distances are greater. Everything is on an exaggerated scale. Mallory was followed next morning by Wakefield, Crawford, and Somerville, who brought down with them a certain amount of the lighter equipment. Morris was all this time working to salvage as much as he possibly could from the different camps. We had a large number of Tibetans pushed up as far as Camp 2, and as many of our own porters as were available, not very many, I am sorry to say by now, working with Morris in the evacuation of Camp 3. In this work, the cooks and orderlies also joined. It was perfectly evident by now that the monsoon had set in in full force. On his return, Morris gave me a very vivid description of how, even during the one day that he stayed up after the others had left at Camp 3, although the weather was fairly fine, the whole face of the mountainsides began to change. How under the influence of the soft south wind, the mountains seemed to melt and disintegrate. Not only that, but even the great teeth formed by the pressure of the collateral glaciers, probably great seracs that spring out like the teeth of a huge saw on the glacier, and which seemed solid enough to last for all time, were visibly crumbling up, and some of them were even toppling over. The great trough of black ice up the center of the glacier which Strutt had described had turned into a rushing torrent, and all this in an incredibly short period of time. Snow also fell at intervals, and it was quite apparent that when the monsoon settled down the whole of Camp 3 would be under a great blanket of fresh snow. 
Under these conditions a good deal of stuff, especially the supplies of grain, sampa, and so on, for our porters, had to be abandoned. As for camps four, five, and six, there was naturally no chance of rescuing anything from them. Thus was occasioned a fairly large loss of outfit, nor was there any possibility that any of it could have stood under any conditions more than a month's exposure to the weather. There was a considerable loss in the oxygen apparatus, but Morris managed to bring down three full outfits in more or less dilapidated condition. On Morris's return to the base camp, the party was completed. One of the difficulties in having so large an outfit as ours was the difficulty of obtaining transport when necessary. Therefore, as soon as we saw signs of the monsoon, it was necessary to make arrangements for our return, as at least fifteen days were required to collect the still large number of animals required for our moving. These animals have to be searched for all down the Tsakar Chu, collected and brought up, nor when once collected could they be kept waiting for very long, as the supply of fodder in the upper valley was absolutely nil. Fodder did not exist. When we sent off the previous party, they traveled as lightly as possible, but even then the small number of animals which was required for their transport had not been obtained with any great ease. Fortunately, John MacDonald was with us and was free, and it was owing to his help, for he speaks Tibetan as well as Nepali, and is thoroughly accustomed to deal with the people, that the two parties of Strutt and Norton were able to proceed with such little delay. It had required a full fifteen days to collect enough animals to move the main body. I had arranged for a latitude of one or two days, which meant that they should have spare food up to that extent, but beyond that it would be quite impossible, naturally, to make provision. Of course, as one of our secondary objects, we had hoped, if our party had not been exhausted, to have explored the West Wrong Book and the Great Glens on the western faces of Everest. And besides this most interesting piece of exploration, of which really not very much more than glimpses were obtained during 1921, there is the prodigious and fascinating group of Cho Uyo and Gyachang Kang to be explored. As I before pointed out, of course, not only was our major work and the whole object of the expedition the tackling of the great mountain, but also it was a race against the weather so we could let nothing interfere with our main object. It was quite clear now, as we were situated, that an exploration of the West Wrong Book was entirely beyond consideration. Not only was the whole party fairly played out, but to get up enthusiasm in a new direction after what we had gone through was pretty nearly out of the question. Somerville, the absolutely untirable, had very strong yearnings in that direction, but it would have been nothing more than a scramble in the dark if he had gone. The weather was broken and was getting worse and worse every day. Snow fell occasionally even at our camp. Further up, everything was getting smothered. Everest, when we had glimpses of it, was a smother of snow from head to foot, and no one who saw it in these days could ever imagine that it was a rock peak. I am afraid also that most of us had only one real idea at the time, and that was to get out of the Wrong Book Valley. However, during our wait for the transport, 
the annual fate of the Rongbuk Monastery occurred. There was a great pilgrimage to the monastery to receive the blessing of the Lama and to witness the annual dances. Most of our party went down to see dances, and Noel especially to cinematograph the whole ceremony, dances as well as religious ceremonies. I have not done justice up to this point to Noel's work. He was quite indefatigable from the start, and had lost no opportunity during our march up, not only of taking many pictures of the country and expedition, both with his ordinary camera and with his cinema camera, but of studying Tibetan life as well. He had, in the Rongbuk Valley, pitched his developing tents near the only available clear water at the moment, and had there been untiring in developing his cinema photographs. He had made two expeditions to the head of the East Rongbuk Glacier, and had even taken his cameras and his cinema outfit on to the North Kal itself, where he remained for no less than four days, a most remarkable tour de force. On the last occasion, he had accompanied the evacuation party and had been actually taking pictures of the start of the last attempt to get to the North Kal and to climb Everest. Of course, his performances with the camera are entirely unprecedented. The amount of work he carried out was prodigious, and the enthusiasm he displayed under the most trying conditions of wind and weather was quite wonderful. We now feel that we can produce a real representation of our life and of life in Tibet in a manner in which it has never hitherto been brought before people's eyes and this gives a reality to the whole expedition which I hope will make all those who are interested in mountain exploration understand the wonderful performances and the great difficulties under which the climbing members of this expedition and the transport officers labored. After the news of the accident had been received, we immediately got in touch with the great Lama of Rongbuk, who was intensely sympathetic and kind over the whole matter. It is very strange to have to deal with these curious people. They are an extraordinary mixture of superstition and nice feelings. Buddhist services were held in the monasteries for the men who had been lost, and for the families, and all the porters, and especially the relations of the men who were killed, were received and specially blessed by the Rongbuk Lama himself. All the Nepalese tribes who live high up in the mountains, and also the Sherpa Botias, have a belief that when a man slips on the mountains and is killed, or when he slips on a cliff above a river and falls into it and is drowned, that this is a sacrifice to God, and especially to the God of the actual mountain or river. They further believe that anyone whosoever who happens to be on the same cliff or on the same mountain at the same place, exactly at the same time of year, on the same date, and at the same hour, will also immediately slip and be killed. I also received, during our return, a very kind letter from the Maharaja of Nepal, condoling with us on the loss of our porters. He writes as follows. Personally, and as a member of the Royal Geographical Society, I share with you the grief that must have resulted from the frustration of the keen hope entertained by you 
and the party. My heartiest sympathies go to you and to the families of the seven men who lost their lives in the attempt. This puts in my mind the curious belief that persistently prevails with the people here, and which I came to learn so long ago in the time of our mutual friend, Colonel Manners Smith, when the question of giving permission for the project of climbing the King of Heights through Nepal was brought by you and discussed in a council of barauders. It is to the effect that the height is the abode of the god and goddess Shiva and Parvati, and any attempt to invade the privacy of it would be a sacrilege fraught with disastrous consequences to this Hindu country and its people. And this belief or superstition, as one may choose to call it, is so firm and strong that people attribute the present tragic occurrence to the divine wrath which on no occasion they would draw on their heads by their actions. This, I must point out, is, of course, the southern and Hindu people's tradition, and did not in the same way affect all the porters whom we employed, as they were Buddhists by faith. The whole of our people, however, took the view common to both, and dismissed their troubles very rapidly and very lightly, holding simply that the men's time had come. And so there was no more to be said about it. If their time had not come, they would not have died. It had come, and they had died, and that was all. What need to say any more? As a matter of fact, this philosophic way of looking on everything also allowed them to say that they were perfectly ready to come back for the next attempt, because if it was written that they should die on Everest, they should die on Everest. If it was written that they would not die on Everest, they would not. And that was all there was to be said in the matter. End of the Assault on the Mountain by C. G. Bruce, Part Two. Recording by Richard Potenza.